Hello and welcome to How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, the podcast that celebrates the things that haven't gone right. This is a podcast about learning from our mistakes and understanding that why we fail ultimately makes us stronger. Because learning how to fail in life actually means learning how to succeed better. I'm your host, author and journalist Elizabeth Day, and every week I'll be asking a new interviewee what they've learned from failure. Johnny Benjamin might not be a familiar name to you, but his story probably is. In 2008, Johnny was 20 and standing on the edge of Waterloo Bridge, about to jump. A passing stranger noticed his distress and stopped to talk to him. It was a momentary decision that saved Johnny's life. Six years later, Johnny launched an internet campaign to find that stranger. More than 319 million people around the world followed the search until it was picked up by a TV breakfast show, which finally reunited Johnny with his good Samaritan, Neil Laybourne. Their reunion was filmed for a Channel 4 documentary, and Johnny's book, The Stranger on the Bridge, was published earlier this year. It tells of the journey Johnny made, both personally and publicly, not only to find the person who saved his life, but also to explore how he got to the bridge in the first place and to further understand his diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. Johnny has since become a full-time mental health campaigner and was awarded an MBE for his work in 2017. But you don't have to take my word for it. Johnny's admirers include William, the Duke of Cambridge, who says, The word inspirational gets bandied around a lot, but Johnny Benjamin is truly deserving of that adjective. Johnny, it's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming. The last time we met was at a panel that we did (laughs) (laughs) for for Facebook, where we had to get up very early in the morning, (laughs) and I was chairing it, and I got to hear Johnny and Neil tell their story, and I was so blown away by it that I knew you had to come on the podcast. And I know that you're very practised at telling that story of how you got to that bridge that Mm. night in Mm. 2008, but I wonder if you could tell us now Mm. what had happened that particular day to lead you to that point well I think it was a build-up of uh having a mental breakdown at the age of 20 you know I was was a student at the time in university and I'd been ill for a while but I'd hidden it from everyone and I'd masked it but yeah in my first term of my third year my final year in Manchester in university I had this breakdown I became psychotic I ended up in this psychiatric hospital and got my diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. And it was that. It was that, really. That was the kind of straw that broke the camel's back, really, when I got that diagnosis. I remember when, when the psychiatrist sat me down and he said, look, you've got this diagnosis, schizoaffective disorder. And I was like, yeah, what's, what was that? And he said, well, it's this combination of schizophrenia and bipolar. And it's like my whole world just came crashing down when I got that diagnosis. Because, you know, growing up, we didn't talk about mental health. I come from a quite a conservative Jewish background and we, we never talked about mental health particularly when I heard the word schizophrenia when the psychiatrist said this schizophrenia everything I saw and read about schizophrenia growing up was just negative I never ever saw anything positive about people living with schizophrenia when I was growing up so when I got that diagnosis it just felt like my world had sort of come to an end I thought what's the point well I mean it was hopeless in the hospital I was in it was hopeless no one around me was getting any better when I was in hospital, I just got worse. And so a month into my stay in, in, in the hospital, one day, this just something in my mind almost kind of snapped, I remember. 
I can sort of go out there. It was horrible. I just remember being like, this is, I cannot do this anymore. There is only one way out of this, and that is suicide. There is no other way out. There's no other way out to escape from this nightmare. I believed that was going to be the rest of my life in hospital, being ill, a burden on my family. Yeah, uh, when I made that decision to end my life, it was like, oh, this is going to sound awful, but I kind of felt a bit liberated. It's going to... Unless you've been there, I don't think you know people can understand, but I was in such despair and pain that finally I had a way out and I kind of felt, felt liberated. And so that's what led me to run away from the hospital. I managed to escape. I said I needed a cigarette. And they let me out and I, I ran as fast as I could and I ended up on this bridge. And, um, and then, obviously, this stranger came along and just stood next to me and he... There was just... There was something about him and... Maybe also him, him being a young guy. I just felt um, a connection. I felt a connection. And I hadn't felt a connection. There was something about this stranger and he was very grounded and he was very calm and he was very um, kind, very gentle. I just, I don't know. I hadn't had this interaction with someone before. <sighs> Mental health, uh, I was suicidal in the hospital and people were almost kind of scared. Not scared of me, but... People were wary of me, I think, in, in the hospital. And every time I said I felt suicidal, they would send me back to the suicide ward. And the suicide ward is somewhere just people just sit and watch and they don't they don't talk to you. They just sit and they watch 24-7. And, but this guy was uh, invested and he, um, I don't know, he... He connected with he you. He connected, he connected. And that was what I needed, I think. Because well, I listened to this interview actually on another podcast called Waking Up. It's a Sam mm. Harris podcast. Mm, mm. And he was interviewing a journalist called Johan Hari, mm, yeah. who was talking specifically about addiction mm. and saying that the opposite to addiction was connection. Mm. And I think in a way, sometimes that can work for mental Absolutely. health issues. Oh my gosh, I believe that. I really believe that. Connection is so key. It's just so key. When you feel disconnected from everyone and everything, I mean... <laughs> I know that that's what it felt like for me. And I was like, what have I got to live for? What have I got to live for? I've got this diagnosis and I felt like an alien and yeah, very disconnected from everyone. And what have I got to live for? So yeah, I, I completely, I completely agree. When you were standing on the bridge thinking those thoughts, were you also terrified of what you were about to do? Or had you got to the stage where you were accepting of it? Oh, <laughs> there was um, an element of being terrified when I when I was on, on the edge, if I'm honest, because when I stepped over the edge of the bridge and saw how high it was, there was an element of being terrified. Yeah, of course. I, I mean, I don't think it was very long when I got a hazy memory, but I don't think it was very long between the time I stepped over the edge and this guy just standing next to me. And it really did kind of burst my like bubble I was in. Yeah, and it shocked me that he was there and he wanted to talk to me. And I actually, I, I remember at first I was I was actually quite rude because I didn't want him there. I didn't want him there. He was distracting me. And I said, there's nothing you can do. You know, there's nothing you can say. But I think it was the fact that he, he didn't walk away and he, he very much stayed grounded and present and, and didn't react. You know, when I was, I started to talk about the pain that was going on in my head and he didn't, I don't know, he just was calm and collected about it and accepting and kind of held the space for me to talk. It was very powerful. It was very powerful. Will you explain to us, before I ask you about what happened next, what schizoaffective disorder mm. means? Yeah, sure. So schizoaffective disorder is a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar. For me, you know, I, I had elements of, of schizophrenia. So I, at the time I was diagnosed, I was hearing a voice. 
I was delusional. I had uh, what I now know is, is called the Truman delusion, where people that have seen the Truman show actually start to believe they're in their own version of the Truman show. And this has become a recognized condition, the Truman delusion. So I thought there were cameras watching me. I thought, you know, everything was a film set and I was being broadcast on TVs around the world. I had that, I was, yeah, hearing a voice, delusional, but then I had the moods, so I was diagnosed with a bipolar element as well because I had the mood swings. To be honest, for me, it was, at that time, I was just so, so badly depressed. Yeah, it was a combination of delusions, hallucinations, and also the, the moods, the mood mm. swinging, yeah. So Neil, as we know he's now called, mm. stepped mm. in and made that mm. vital human connection. Yeah. And then it got a little bit chaotic for you, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, we were talking for half an hour and finally he convinced me to come for a coffee. He said, you know, there's a coffee shop at the end. This was January 2008 and it was freezing. It was absolutely freezing. And I I was only in a T-shirt because, you know, I wasn't in a, in a good place. And he convinced me eventually to go for this coffee. And I wanted to go because I, you know, as we've been saying, I had this connection. It was, I wanted to carry on the conversation because maybe there was some hope. There was some hope there, you know. There was another another way out that he'd just shown me. You know, I didn't have to go through with this. And and I wanted to go for that coffee. So he helped me over the edge of the bridge, back to the pavement. And uh, when we were on the pavement, as soon as I got to the pavement, someone had called the police. Um, and the police were waiting a bit further down the bridge. And they kind of just jumped out. And they just kind of made a beeline for me. And when I saw the police coming towards me... I panicked. I panicked because I knew what was going to happen. I was going to be taken away. And so I tried to get back over the edge of the bridge. Actually, it was it was Neil that he stopped me. He grabbed me. And then the police basically took over as soon as he grabbed me. And they, well, for me, it was quite distressing. And I ended up being restrained and handcuffed and taken away. Um, I was taken one way by one of the police. And then Neil was taken the other way to have a, he gave a statement, Neil, and uh, and we were separated at that point. The police said to him, right, we'll just go on your way to work. And for me, I, I was taken away and I was sectioned in the in the local hospital. So we were completely separated and, yeah, obviously never got that coffee and never even got to say sort of goodbye. Yeah, it was it was very strange. You know, we'd gone from this situation where I'd calmed down and I was, you know, with Neil and I was... But and then suddenly it just became so frantic and distressing and... I was now obviously, yeah, being sectioned was quite, quite tough. And then from there, how do you get here to this handsome, eloquent young man sitting on my sofa, being able to talk about this with such insight? It's a long journey. Yeah, a long, a long journey, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah, it's... Yeah, yeah, long, 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 and an ongoing journey as well. Uh, ongoing, <laughs> mm. you know. It, 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 it I never think leaves you. It never, it never does. It never does, and that's fine. And I think it's come for me. It's been acceptance. You know, for the first few years, I didn't want to accept it. I was in my early twenties, and my friends they were they were graduating and they were getting jobs and you know moving forwards, and I felt stuck. I was this label, and I just felt stuck. And so for my first few years, I was in denial. I wouldn't take my medication. I didn't want therapy. I just, it was really tough, not just for me, but for my family and my friends because they, we, we didn't know how to talk about it. We, we just, but in my, in my mid twenties, that's when I finally started talking. And my way of talking was I made YouTube videos because 
I could never talk to someone face to face, look someone in the eyes and talk about my thoughts, my feelings. It was just too embarrassing. I couldn't get over the embarrassment. So I started making these these YouTube videos and it was just easier for me to talk to the camera. And I put these YouTube videos online. And that's how I started talking. And I realized it was helping me and it, it was helping other people as well. It made me feel less isolated. It was helping other people to feel less isolated, people going through the same things. And so I started talking. I started talking on YouTube and that led me to start talking to people around me. It built my confidence to talk. And I guess other things over the years, ther- I mean, therapy, wow, therapy. Yeah, I know you've obviously talked about therapy yeah. and it's been a lifeline massive lifeline as has a mindfulness for me again massive lifeline and I, now I take medication as well but I think yeah the, coming to accept and, and also coming to be a bit more compassionate to myself and forgive myself you know I all those years I hated myself for everything that I believed I put myself through but my family through and my friends through for and then finally, you know, just I have something called uh, CFT and CFT is compassion focused therapy. And, and that has been a kind of revelation to me. So the acceptance, the acceptance, I think has been, um, you know, I meet lots of people now in the work that I do who, you know, they say to me, how do you talk? I, I can never talk and I'll, I'll never get to where you are. And I say, yeah, you will, because, you know, I was like you, you know, I, I couldn't talk about it, but I think everyone can. It just it does. It takes time, it takes time. Um, you know, there's still a stigma. Mm. stigma attached to mental health it's getting better but you know it's still there do you think that there's a there's a broader social issue where people still think of mental health issues as quote-unquote failures Mm, yeah i do a lot of work in corporates and um i was in a corporate just last week and i was talking to a manager there who um has uh, mental health issues and the manager said to me you know i can never talk about my mental health issues you know i wish i could talk like you but i can never talk because it will be seen as a failure, as a weakness. People will judge me for it and, and judge my capability to work, even though, you know, she was a senior manager and, and she'd done exceptionally well. But she just said, as soon as I reveal I've got mental health issues, it will be something that people can hold against me. And I just, yeah, I think it's very sad that we live in that. It's getting, it's getting better, but we still live in that world where, particularly in workplaces, I think, people can't be open about their mental health for that fear of, of being judged. Yes, it makes me sad. You spoke about this thing that really, really struck me when we met at Mm. that panel a few months ago now, which was about people who live with mental health issues, which is so, so many of us. Yeah, absolutely. Is having a work plan developed? Mm, mm. What did you call it? It was called something specific. Yeah, it's called a RAP, a Wellness Recovery Action Plan. And I started working for the charity uh, Rethink Mental Illness and... My very first day of working there, they came around and they looked at my chair. Is the chair all right for my back? And is computer screen, you know, the height, of the, is it all right for my vision? And then they, they came around and, and they said, right, we're going to do this uh, wrap, you know, to, to look at your well-being and, and what we can do to support your mental health if you're struggling, if you need help. And it was great. You know, it just it was things like what signs can we look out for if you're struggling and, and what can we put in place if you are struggling? And for me, it was things like, you know, I'd come in after the rush hour or you know, leave after the rush hour or make sure I take my hour lunch break. You know, I I would sit at my desk and just kind of work through my lunch break. But yeah, take my hour lunch break. And I had a relapse when I was working at Rethink. And 
it was just so much easier because I just the rap was there with all the things in it, you know, that they're going to put in place. You know, you, my manager was like, right, from tomorrow, you come in after the rush hour, you make sure you take your hour lunch break. I'm going to make sure you, you go outside and have some fresh air. It just made life so much easier. And it just from day one, it was just very much, it was such an open environment. People talked about their mental health, you know, like they did their physical health. I've got a cold, I've got a migraine. Oh, I've got depression or, you know, I've been feeling really anxious. So do you know what I mean? It was amazing and that's how it should be. I think it's such a phenomenal idea, the mm. rap. It really, mm. really stuck with me. I was like, yeah, yeah I wish every single workplace I would adopt that. Should. I think they should, yeah. I think it would make a massive difference. Now, you were reunited with mm. Neil following this Facebook campaign that mm. then went viral and was yeah. picked up by an ITV breakfast show. Mm. What was the moment of reunion like? Was there... I mean, did you recognise each other? I mean, I know that it was a set-up mm. and you knew it was happening, but mm. was there a kind of familiar no. feeling of kinship? Yeah, absolutely. It, it took a while because I was I was so nervous, you know, because the cameras were on us and I was like, what well, if I don't recognise him? And at first when he walked in, I just went over to hug him. And, and But then it was it was when we actually sat down, we sat down on a, on a sofa and we began to talk and I'll never forget. Neil made this kind of, gesture he 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 reached out his hand he, you know he was making a gesture while he was talking and like everything just clicked into place in my head it was so surreal you know when he I don't know obviously he, he must have made this gesture on the bridge but everything came back into my head you know I recognized him I saw him there it'd been absolutely hazy my memory I couldn't remember what he was like on the bridge but when I saw him and sat down and he started to talk and he was making these gestures everything just came back and it was so surreal very surreal yeah just everything suddenly coming back into your memory but it was amazing to be able to sit there and just say thank you and just for him to see you know the progress that I'd made from that day where I was worst day of my life to to now and for him it was it was just it was really special it was really special it's we forgot the cameras were there really we just talked and talked and talked and yeah, it's incredibly special. And it, if you haven't seen that documentary, it is that moment where you meet is profoundly, profoundly moving. It really, really is. And it must, have you watched it back ever? Mm, mm, it must mm, be weird mm. for you watching oh, it back. Gosh. Really weird. I don't like. I mean, I don't like watching myself anyway. So when I have to watch it back, it's cringing. But yeah, it's very surreal. It feels very surreal. It was also the way it sort of seemed to touch other people. The mm. campaign and the documentary. Because so many people, as you, so many people are affected by mental health and also suicide. You know, suicide. Because um, we do, we talk a lot in the documentary about suicide, and we're not afraid to talk about it. And so many people have been affected by suicide, and, and they feel they can't talk about it. And again, there's there's a stigma around suicide, isn't there? I mean, messages from all over the world just really, wow! It was um, quite amazing, quite amazing. a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hey guys, it's Cheyenne Davis. You may know me from MTV's Teen Mom OG or Think Loud Crew podcast. I'm here with my dad, Papa Floyd, to tell you about our new podcast, Unfiltered Kitchen. 
The kitchen is the hub of the household for many of us. The one-stop shop for conversations both big and small. Cheyenne and I have been having open conversations about all aspects of life in our kitchen since well before she was able to see over the counter. And now we're inviting you into our own kitchen as a part of the family. Unfiltered Kitchen is a two-way street. I share my advice on cocktails, cooking, parenting, and the lessons I've learned. And I inform my dad what it's like to raise kids today, how generational barriers affect us, and the joys of being a daughter. Well, your daughter. Get ready for a whole lot of unfiltered advice. You can take it or leave it, but you're never going to leave this table feeling hungry for more. Listen to Unfiltered Kitchen wherever you get your podcasts. There is a huge stigma around suicide, isn't there? Even the language that we mm. traditionally use, the yeah. idea of committing it as yeah. if it were a crime, as it yeah. used to be but is no longer. Absolutely. And actually just changing our language, I think, can have a very powerful impact. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that term, commit suicide, it... Yeah, we still use it. Or people, still, politicians use it, journalists use it. Now, obviously, there's guidelines. There's something called the Mental Health Media Charter that someone called Natasha Devon, amazing campaigner. The Mental Health Media Charter she came up with. The guidelines of what you can say in terms of suicide is really useful. Suicide was decriminalised decades ago, and yet we still... I speak to people who are bereaved by suicide, and that does affect. It affects, you know, they say, he didn't commit or she didn't commit a crime or commit, you know, they were in so much pain and they felt they had no choice but to take their own lives. And so, yeah, I think the language is, it's really important, the language. And the language about, around mental health as well is, is so important. And I see, sometimes I see things being misused, like schizophrenia. You know, I, I never forget, I was in, a, in the theatre and the guy behind me, sitting in the row behind me, was talking about his boss and he was saying, oh, she's such a schizo. Like one minute she's like this and the next she's like that. She's like, she's got a split personality. She's a right schizo. And I just wanted to turn around and be like, explain what schizophrenia is. It's not split personality. It's not jumping from one thing to another. It's it's not that at all. A lot more education that's needed around mental health and suicide as well. Well, talking about the language that we use and the language that the media uses, you wanted to talk about Amy Winehouse, mm. whose life was horribly affected mm. by a lot of the media attention that she faced. Can you tell me why you wanted to talk mm. about her? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'll, I'll never forget the first time that I heard Amy. I was at university and I was going through a difficult time and I was out shopping. Um, oh, I, can't, I think I was in... New look, I think. I oh, think. yeah. Right. <laughs> I wouldn't have expected that of you. You're so stylish. <laughs> Nothing wrong with New Look. I love New Look. No shade. No shade. <laughs> <laughs> and basically, um, Amy Winehouse's rehab came on in the store, and I'll never forget. I've never had this where I heard this song. I heard the lyrics. I heard her voice, and I was just like, I can't move. I have to stay. I have to finish. I can't leave the store before I hear the end of the song. It just, it was such a powerful song that really resonated with me. It's very honest. And so, yeah, I instantly became a fan when I heard Rehab. Just the way she was singing so vulnerably, so vulnerably. As soon as I heard that, you know, I obviously Googled her, bought all her music, went to see her live. And obviously that was a difficult time for her, you know, when she released Rehab and her, her second album, Back to Black, you know, the... And the media gave her such a hard time. And 
I was a massive, massive fan. And we there was a lot of, I don't know, for me in my head, we had a lot of similarities. You know, she was a, a North London Jewish girl. I was a North London Jewish boy, a bit of a rebel. Uh, she was a rebel. I was just a huge, huge fan. But I always, and, and also our journeys seemed to mirror each other in a way. So when she became quite unwell, 2007, 2008, that's when I had my breakdown. And she went through a, a better period, you know, eventually went through a better period. And that's when I started to go through my better period and I really thought you know she's doing well and (laughs) I wrote her this massive long letter literally just before she passed away you know there was this gig that she did the last I mean it's just tragic the last gig that she did in Belgrade she was really unwell you could see how unwell she was and she was forced out onto the stage and she didn't want to sing and I wrote her a letter and I said you know um it's okay it's okay your real fans will wait will wait for however long you need you know there was pressure to release new music to to get back out on stage I said don't worry don't worry you know we'll wait your fans will wait and be kind to yourself and just this massive long I, did, I tried not to make it too like fan <laughs> well you know what I mean but I just I wanted to show that people did care because I felt like the way the media treated her was so unkind so I wanted to know that she did have a such a positive impact I thought she was so brave and courageous and and then she suddenly passed away and uh, I'll never forget I was working at the time actually I was a I was a, an assistant wedding photographer oh my uh, which was interesting no yeah. it was good it was good <laughs> and then this this one wedding I was at these sort of whispers start going around yeah Amy Winehouse Amy Winehouse. my phone literally I looked at my phone there were like seven missed calls from different friends and I knew, I knew, I knew as soon as I saw my phone and the missed calls from all, all these friends, I knew, I knew she'd passed away. And then someone said, so one of the guests came up to, to myself and, and the other photographer and said, oh, did you hear about Amy Winehouse? She's, she's dead. And um, he started saying, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not surprised. We, we, we all thought this would happen. We knew it would happen. And I sat there and I... And my blood just went cold. I, and I just wanted to scream, you know, you know. Because I always defended her for so many years because friends would say to me, you know she's going to die. You know she's going to I was like, no, she won't. She's, why say that? You know, she'll overcome. And obviously she didn't. And I just felt so angry and felt I... And so I went to her flat in Camden the next day to lay flowers. And when I got to the flat, all I saw were rows and rows of press there right on the front line where you know the fans should have been the fans were behind and I'll never forget I went to lay my flowers down with all the other flowers outside the flat and I heard a journalist say oh we need to get someone crying we need to get one of the fans crying she was saying it to the cameraman and I I I just I just had to walk away and just I just yeah and I you know I, I think about Amy all the time and you know she's uh featured quite heavily in my book even though, you know, I obviously I didn't know her. I was just a fan, but I just, oh, mm. I just wish I'm sure she didn't read my letter. Not that it would have, oh, you know, in my head, I was like, if she'd have read my letter, you know, that's what I was saying for a while. If she'd have read my letter, because this letter, I spent ages on it and I poured so much sort of love into that letter. And I was like, should have read that letter, should have known that someone out there really, really did just want her to get better and didn't care about the music, just wanted her as a person to get better. And I still feel heartbroken that she's not here and she, she should still be here, I believe. And it's not just Amy, but obviously, you know, there was Whitney Houston as well. There was, and that, and that again, I just, 
all my favorite artists are Billie Holiday and, and Nina Simone and Etta James and all of these artists. Oh, they're the most honest and vulnerable and, and beautiful singers and they suffered the most and yeah, it just, it carries on till today and it just, it really makes me really angry. It's almost as if their truth comes from a tortured soul. Mm. But I think it's rather beautiful that you chose that as one of your failures, your failure to reach out to Amy Winehouse because it's mm. actually a very selfless failure. It's about you wish you could have saved someone else. And I think that that speaks rather highly of you and how wonderful that you still listen to her music and you think of her all of the time. And it's so interesting hearing you talk about Amy Winehouse because my cousin, whom I'm extremely mm. close to, had a very similar kinship with Prince. Oh, really? And, you know, her daughter was born on Prince's oh, birthday really? and things like this. And, it, and she feels the loss of him very mm. acutely as well. Mm. And I think it's something, when you feel that for someone who mm. expresses themselves and their art through music, it's such a powerful thing. Mm. It really is. And, and, and almost, well, for me, kind of felt like losing a friend. Yeah. I said that to people and they're like, that, that'd be ridiculous. You know, she's a, she's a, you're just a fan. But, you know, when you have an artist that you... I adored and worshipped her, and it feels more than just being a fan. I found so much comfort in, in her music, and when I listened to her, it was it was like... Again, we talked about connection. It, was, it had this connection, and it did. It felt like a massive loss, and I'm sure, you know, talking about Prince and your cousin, it must have felt like the most horrendous loss. And anyone that I think has a favourite artist or an actor, but particularly, I think, music, favourite artist, and they lose them, I think it's... Especially in circumstances like Amy's, where she was 27, the, the whole 27 club. I mean, mm. it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking because I believe it could have been very different. So Amy Winehouse and connection leads us on to your second failure, which is actually about feeling isolated again. Mm. And you wanted to talk about mm. your diagnosis, which again, I'm so proud of you for talking about this. It's your diagnosis with IBS, irritable bowel <laughs> syndrome, when you yeah. were in your mid-20s. Yeah. Because it just felt like such a sucker punch to you after the yeah. previous diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. But yeah. yeah, tell us about that. I mean, it's something actually I don't talk about as much because people see me as, you know, mental health, mental health. So I don't often talk about the IBS, but it's something again that is, is chronic and, you know, continues to affect me. And um, people might disagree. I really do think it was linked to my mental health. And like when I was 23, 24, I started to get really bad anxiety. And I remember literally feeling it in my guts, you know, the tightness, the twisting. I then started to suffer from really bad cramps like I'd never had before. I had blood in my stools and um, obviously I went to my doctor and referred on to a consultant. Uh, uh, I can never say a, a gastro... And, no. Gastroenterologist? Yes, you got it. Yes, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <There> you <go. laughs> um, he did a, all the tests, the colonoscopy, you know, the endoscopy. Mm. <laughs> Quite intrusive. But, um, and then actually initially he diagnosed me with Crohn's Oh, that was a yeah, and then, and then uh, put me on steroids, and the steroids sent me onto a sent me into a psychosis. So I quickly came off them, and then we did some more tests, and then he changed the diagnosis to IBS. And uh, for me, I just it was a blow. It was a massive blow, especially again in my twenties. I was I'd never had a proper boyfriend. I was I wanted to you know have a relationship, and when I got that diagnosis again, I was like, well. Who's going to want to 
be with me when got you know the, the mental health but also the physical health particularly IBS which is uh, I mean, I want to be with you, and I'm not a gay man. <laughs> so seriously. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know. You know, you spend a day with me, you might change your mind. But, um, but IBS on a practical level, mm. and apologies because you obviously don't have the no, most detail. No, no, it's fine. But does it make it difficult, for instance, going out on a, mm. a on a date for a meal? Yeah. Or does it make it difficult? being intimate because you're worried you need to rush to the bathroom like is it that kind of stuff yeah absolutely absolutely and um, when I did finally (laughs) finally find a guy that was interested and I remember being with him once in the supermarket and I was panicking about what to eat because I know that certain food I was trying to work out what foods affect me in different because it's so complex and I was panicking about what to eat because I knew that you know maybe we'd be intimate later and what I ate for dinner was going to obviously have an effect, you know, later on when we were in the bedroom. So I was panicking and he just lost his temper with me. And, you know, he said, you're just ridiculous. You know, you're so fussy. And I, I didn't have the courage to explain actually why I was being so, so fussy and picky and and worrying about what I was going to eat. But yeah, so things like, you know, intimacy, a big one going out when I was working in offices that would be really difficult. You'd be in the toilet and um, you'd be, I, I would be really self-conscious of, you know, what is everyone thinking of me? Because I use about a whole roll of toilet paper. I go through a roll of toilet paper. And what's everyone in the next cubicles thinking of me? You know, I'm constantly getting this toilet paper. <laughs> just this really, yeah, just this, yeah. Again, it's something like my mental, I just have to manage it. I know that, you know, when I drink too much and when I eat, foods that you know aren't necessarily too healthy I know that I'm gonna have a dairy wheat of things that I know now kind of do make me flare up just actually just recently just a few weeks ago I was diagnosed with colitis which is um because again I started bleeding colitis is kind of right down the the end of the rectum and it, you know we put the camera up there or we're not we obviously I didn't put a camera up there. my consultant put the camera up and it was all inflamed and I again I know that's linked to stress because whenever I get stressed I go through stress, I get these flare-ups. So I know there's a link and I know I need to be more healthy in mind and body, but it's not always easy. It's not easy. And again, it's I, with IBS, it's just something that I find embarrassing. I find it embarrassing. I find the IBS more embarrassing now than my mental health because I talk about my mental health so much. But the IBS, when I start bleeding or when I have really bad cramps or when it just feels really uncomfortable, or when I'm worried about, you know, if I want to be intimate with someone. And I do, I find it really, really embarrassing. And I know one of the guys that I've been with, yeah, I'm sure, because I was going through a flare-up, and I'm sure when I was going through my flare-up, you know, that kind of was what turned him off. Because it meant I couldn't be intimate for a while, because it just didn't feel, I wasn't, yeah. So it's a, it's still a source of embarrassment. You know, when I when I first got it in my mid-twenties, it really did feel like a massive failure, a massive failure, another failure. I try now not to look at it as a... Oh, it definitely isn't a failure. I mean, I'm glad you've spoken about it for the purposes of this podcast. Mm. I ca- cannot tell you how glad I am mm. and how impressed I am that you have because I know of so many people who either have IBS or similar issues mm. who will get such comfort from this. And I also think it's very important for those of us who don't have it but who might be dating someone who has it to understand it from that side as well and it's so interesting what you were saying you described it as a gut feeling that Mm. it was linked to your stress and it's literally a gut feeling like your gut is your second brain isn't it yes it is it really is and I don't think 
and I've said this to doctors actually, and, and doctors, oh, don't be silly, or you know, no, and it's, it's nothing to do with that. And yeah, that's challenging. I find that challenging. Yeah, I just wish people would have more, be more open minded, particularly health professionals, actually, because sometimes that's the most difficult talking to health professionals about it. Yeah, I wish people would be yeah more more sensitive and more empathetic, not not sympathetic, more more empathetic, I think, with it. And so so many people are affected by IBS. So many. So many, or, or some sort of um, gut uh, complaint. But it's this real source of shame and embarrassment. Particularly, you know, I, I've spoken to guys about it, and um, only because I've talked about it, have they talked about it with me. I just wish we'd, we could talk about it a bit more, you know, because it's a, you know, we've got to digest our food. Yeah. It's got to go through. <laughs> so why can't we? It's a natural thing. Again, you know, just like having a cold or, or, or having a headache, you know, it's something that, that happens. And we, you know, we talk about our colds and our headaches, you know, just without hesitation. But when it comes to something in our in our guts, because it's not very glamorous or, I don't know, just not talked about, it's, it's seen as um, something embarrassing. And I think it's a shame. I've got a very important question before we go <laughs> on to your third and final yeah. failure. Are you single now? I am. I, I am. mean, this is insane. <laughs> well, so, I, uh I've tried, honestly, and... Are you open to set-ups? Yeah, I am. Oh, great. But I'm, okay. I'm really... I'm not very... I'm really complex. Well, oh, no, I mean, I'm, that's, I'm being really... We'll chat afterwards. Okay, afterwards, yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> I am, I am. Because, uh, you know, I'm 31 now. I've never been in a proper relationship. I've, yeah, I would like to. I would yeah. like to. So, yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to. Your, <laughs> your third failure, which, again, isn't really a failure because... That's the whole nature of this podcast. Yeah. It's about what we learn from them and how oh, we can absolutely. learn more about success. But absolutely. you published a book, which by any metric is an incredible success, particularly when you are talking about what we started our interview mm. on, which is this devastating day that you had where mm. you were about to jump from Waterloo Bridge. The book is called The Stranger on the Bridge, and it is wonderful. And I, I think you should all rush out and buy it. But you brilliantly said to me in an email, you don't really love talking about the fact that it hasn't sold as many no. copies as you would like yeah. it to. No. But I'm very glad that you're going to talk about it because I'm going to let you into a secret, yeah. which is that no one's books ever sell as much as you think really? they're going to, really? unless you're writing Harry Potter. Yeah, but I had a similar true. thing. When I, when I wrote my first novel, everyone would always say to me, oh my God, you published a book. Amazing. Yeah. How's it going? Mm, yeah, <laughs> you know? And you've had the same thing, haven't yeah, you? People yeah, asking me how it's yeah, going. Yeah, all the time, all the time. Because you put your heart and soul into it, don't you? You put your heart and your soul, and particularly with this book, because it's so personal. It's so personal, and myself and my co-author, Britt, we spent, what, almost two years going through, you know, all my old diaries growing up and going into such personal, personal, you know, really going back over everything, the depths of, of my despair. When it came out and everyone was like, it's going to do really well, and everyone's gonna love it and how's it doing it must be doing really well you know where's it in the chart oh that was the one where's it oh. in the chart how many is it sold <laughs> I lied I lied because I couldn't face being honest and I think probably if someone if I go out of here and I see a friend and they'll say how's your how's your book and actually no maybe I'll maybe I will maybe now maybe now be, yeah. that I've spoken about it maybe I now I can say and also with me if I'm honest I think because you know when I got my diagnosis at 20 and I look at my early 20s as kind of a, a write-off and all my friends were getting the jobs and getting relationships and being success. what I see as successful and I, I wasn't and I felt so guilty that particularly, again, I think coming from this, this Jewish background where <laughs> 
success is really important, actually, in a lot of cultures, isn't it? Success is really, really important. And failure is something that, you know, we don't talk about and it's seen as embarrassing. And so I I felt like a failure. I felt like such a failure, such a failure through a lot of my 20s, actually. Only when I started, when obviously I found this guy on the bridge and I started talking about mental health and started doing work in mental health. Finally, I felt, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not such a failure anymore. But I feel like I've... <laughs> almost got to make up for all those years that I felt like a failure uh, or not just for myself, but for other people. And I know, you know, I know that my family, my friends, they, they, they love me no matter what. It's, it's unconditional love, but there's still this element of me. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I think so many people in so many different ways relate to that in a tiny, tiny way. Like I never felt that I fitted in at school. Mm. I was at school in Northern Ireland. I always spoke mm. with a very English accent. And I honestly believe that a massive part of my drive to become a journalist mm. and then an author yeah. was to see my name in print mm. and to prove right. myself right. to myself. Right, right, right. And, and to prove those like other people wrong, which is yeah, sort yeah, of ridiculous, yeah, but yeah. but sort of great because I wouldn't want to be without my drive. No, no, absolutely. I think it's so important. It's so important. I, and I am, I am, I am. I'm really, there's so many things I want to achieve in mental health and I'm so ambitious, but yeah, I want people... I want people to see me as um and that's the other thing as well actually when I think about it now I know people worry about me and people will say to me oh you look really well you're doing well then and I want people to think I'm doing well and I want people to think I'm successful because I don't want people to worry about me a lot of people in my yeah as I said through my early 20s did did worry about me a lot because I wasn't myself and and now so again I feel I've got to prove that I'm well I'm successful and so when this book came out and it and even you know and I spoke to my publishers and they said well it didn't sell as it's not selling as we we hoped it would is it out in paperback yet no it's coming out in paperback in May okay so, <laughs> so, I mean you, you've come to the right place because so I've published four books now and yeah. and and there is a general assumption in the publishing industry that you publish hardback to get the critical reviews mm. but it doesn't sell in hardback okay. it sells in paperback that's <laughs> where the volume comes right. and also to reassure you when I met you, I thought your book had done really well. Really? So I had read loads about it. I was really? like, Johnny Benjamin, of course, I know exactly what this really? story is. So I think the perception that you have of yourself, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning. Like, it's it's hard. You're hard on yourself and you need to have more compassion on yourself. That's your challenge. <laughs> do, you, it's, do you know what? I've Because I've, I started self this the CFT, this Compassion Focused Therapy, two years ago. And... Um, you know, I think, well, whenever I've entered therapy, it's always been like, right, hopefully maybe a month, two months, three months. And, you know, you get to three months and you're like, no, and, and six months and no, and a year. And I said to my therapist, I was like, I'm not making progress. This is, I'm just, he was like, no, you are, you are making progress. And yeah, and I realise now it's kind of like a life's journey. And I think for me, I think the meaning <laughs> for my life is to be at peace with, with myself and to be compassionate compassionate with myself I think that's my life's journey now is to I don't know I think I'll get there eventually but uh and it, it's it's a journey it's a journey but I'm prepared to go on that life's journey now I feel like because I have touched when I've gone on retreats and I've gone on lots of different retreats and done different workshops and I've touched self-compassion I've touched self-compassion and I've looked in the mirror and 
you know, even said I love you <laughs> to myself, which is revolutionary. But then it, I go back to normal life, daily life, and it, it stops. You know, I go back to my being hard on myself. But I know I can get to that place of being self-compassionate. And, you know, even if it is a life's journey to get there, even, you know, I think, you know, when I'm 70, 80, well, if I get there, if I can just be at peace with myself when I'm that age and feel self-compassionate when I'm that age, you know, and say, you know, no matter what happened, I'm proud of you and I love you. And then, yeah, then that's that's my life's journey. Okay, so we're like basically both into it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> because I think that what's amazing about your journey, as you describe it, to self-compassion is that it touches so many people. So actually in showing compassion to yourself, you're showing compassion to other people who mm. feel that they are untouchable or unlovable yeah. or misunderstood and I think that is a quiet and beautiful revolution. And I thank you so much, Johnny no, Benjamin, you, MBE, for coming to my no, flat. It's been thank the most you. amazing conversation. Thank you. thank you for having me. Thank you for being so open. Thank you. 